Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. On this episode of Conversations from Here, I have the honor of speaking with the brilliant and delightful David Scharf. We speak about his days in New York City in the late 1970s at CBGB's and Mud Club and Max's Kansas City and all those fantastic places for music of that era. We also talk a bit about his Borscht Belt beginnings when he was just a wee lad in the Catskills of New York and how he came to find his Tibetan teacher, Shagdud Tolku Rinpoche. This will be the first of two parts, so we're, we're doing a twofer for David. We will have this episode and then a part two later on. There was just too much to talk about, and I didn't want to rush through, uh, especially regarding his stories of him and his teacher. That's great stuff. We wanted to capture it all, so there will be an episode two. This is episode one. I hope you enjoy. Here's me and David. Uh, it's really nice to see your face. I've been tracking what you're doing with the podcast and seeing your occasional posts and really happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And and we know each other just for the for the audience uh, sake. Uh, we know each other from the, the good old battle days in Los Angeles and you were teaching <laughs> a Tibetan meditation class. That's right. It's something that I still do by Zoom, mm -hmm. something that I was doing since around 2007. So at mm -hmm. Golden Bridge and then at Golden Soul and, and then continued at uh, a place called Liberate Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then the pandemic hit and it was from my living room through Zoom. Yeah. yeah. And I should also um, give a shout out to our uh, Vicky Jopdarum Rose, who is a mutual friend, and she was also a guest on this very podcast. Um, I want to say about a year and a half ago. So we had a great we had a great time. Vicky is 
awesome. And it was such a shock and delight to run into her at Golden Bridge because I didn't know who it was, but I knew I knew her uh-huh. by her face. Uh-huh. And then she apparently knew that it was me. And maybe I was more recognizable or she just recognized the name because Vicky Jap Darum didn't sound familiar to me. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, wait, Vicky Rose? And she yeah. was like, yes. So Vicky and I knew each other from when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16. And I was uh, a patron of CPGBs. We used to go uh, very frequently. My, my close friend, Philip, who ended up being the guitar player in my band, mm-hmm. he and I were going to CPGBs very frequently. And uh, Vicky was one of the two or three people that, were, that we could count on at the door to let us in, even though we were extremely underage. <laughs> Shh, but we won't say anything about that. Yeah, there was Vicky and there was BG and there was one other person, I think, Roberta. And, and they were just, it was never an issue. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to let these guys in, even though they're underage. No, they let everybody in because yeah. they didn't care about that factor. It's like, well, you're here. You got this here. was This was back in the day. This was, this was Very, probably early 80s, are we talking? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Then, like 1977. Oh, wow. Okay, farther back, right? Yeah, back- so this is way back. And, you know, it was uh, kind of a period of time in CBGBs where there had been one, um, a little bit of one wave that had gone through. So mm-hmm. Hattie Smith and, and Blondie, they were no longer playing there. Mm-hmm. But the talking heads were. Oh yeah, the Talking Heads were, and they were still a three-piece band um, uh-huh. that Jerry Harrison hadn't joined. And television was talking there, uh, playing there, and people like uh, John Cale from the Velvet Underground, and you know Lou Reed would join him at the late night second set, um, and the, all of these these other the Heartbreakers. They were more of a Max's band, but the Heartbreakers would play. The, the Dead Boys, the Ramones were still playing there a lot. Um, I can't tell you, I don't know. I can't tell you because I don't know how many Ramon sets I saw. And, and it's funny because, well, just as a tangent, you know, that it's, it's so much in antiquity and there's so much legend that has ag- accrued around it that people sometimes will say, oh, but what was it really like? You know, you hear all these things and it was so amazing and all these bands were there. What was it really like? And I'm like, it's actually better than anything anybody has ever told you or anything that anybody has depicted because you could go on a Thursday night. There would be four nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, two sets each night, television and talking heads, two sets from each of them each night. And that's what a Thursday night was at CBGB's. You know, it was one of those things that was really... And everybody who was in the audience were other people who were in bands, part of the scene. You know, if Patty wasn't playing there anymore, she certainly was in the audience when television was playing. Um, and so we were going as 15, 16 year olds. My, my friend Philip and I were going as young teenagers and uh, fans of all these bands. And so we ended up, uh, I mean, meeting a lot of the people who became our bandmates started fan clubs which is so charming thinking in retrospect you know having fan clubs for the bands like the dead boys fan club with a little fan club card the ramones fan club the mumps lance louds band um and back then you could sit in the front row at a table and eat chili from cbgb's not something you would imagine but that was what it was like then a 
bunch of people sitting around at tables watching the Ramones and the Talking Heads eating chili. Well, they cut off the chili before the band started, but oh, I was going to say. You, you showed up to get your good seat and you ate chili yeah. because you got your good seat and then the bands would come on and it was it was really um life-changing electrifying i mean you know i remember moments of turning to my friend and just when the talking cans were a three-person band they were so tight and it was so intense and you know david byrne couldn't even look at the audience he was so um, spectrum and he would sing with his eyes closed and it was we looked at each other with hair raised, like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. These people are doing something incredible. And each time we saw a different band, there was another kind of level of shock and delight. You know, you also had a front seat to another very unique institution, which was, I remember you talking about being a kid and being, being uh, tangential to the Borscht Belt circuit. And young men and all those people. What? Tell me more about that. Oy vey. Well, yeah. Um, my grandfather was uh, connected, and so because he was connected, he was a legitimate businessman who had many friends in different businesses. Mm -hmm. And tapping your of, nose as you say this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those who have ears to hear. And so when uh, when I would spend time with him and his wife, my step grandmother, sometimes we would go out to this club in Long Island. It was a hotel called the Lido Beach Hotel. And there would be all of these performers that would come through. And it was the Borscht Belt. It was Henny Youngman. It was, you know, uh, Red Buttons. It was Joey Bishop. Um, these kinds of old school uh, routine performers. I mean, there were no rim shots, but there could have been after every joke. Sure. And uh, he was, I guess they were either uh, enamored or afraid of him, but... <laughs> They always, my grandfather always introduced me to whomever was playing there. And so I got to, you know, sit, bounce on Henny Youngman's knee as he then told jokes that I didn't understand later on in the night. So it wasn't just take my wife, please. There was a little, right. in the privacy of a nightclub, he got a little racier and mm -hmm. uh, I definitely didn't get half of the jokes, but I got to spend time with him that night, hung out was very impressed and the stardom alone was very impressive but also he's one of those people who has charisma you know mm -hmm. he's a stage persona mm -hmm. so yes i sat on the knee penny youngman and my bad sense of humor was inculcated from a very young age i was going to say that even though you may not have understood the content of said <laughs> jokes in some way, I imagine maybe in the in the imaginings of a of a of a small kid, you're you're hearing you're hearing performers and then you're hearing the audience response. And maybe that kind of uh, spawned your desire to be a performer yourself in terms of being a musician and whatnot. I feel seen, but I feel like exposed at the same time. Um, I never thought of it that way, but I think you have a point. I think that there's a sense of being able to be on the, the inside, the backstage of a performer's moment and then seeing them go on stage and put on the performance mode. And then also to be 
kind of called out in the audience because they would always, you know, there was a reference. They would either say, oh, I heard that joke from my little friend David Scharf, or, you know, this one is for Sally and Irving, or something. That's my grandparents. So this kind of backstage, onstage, from stage thread, I think actually you're right. There might have been a little taste of that, that, mm -hmm. that made showbiz seem appealing showbiz because you knew you you knew that people were looking at you and at you they noticed you and so to be to be able to to reside in that and be comfortable with it is quite something because how how old were you nine eight or nine yeah okay so you were young you were young enough to to be aware of that yeah and you know i just i think you hit on something because it's sure felt good to have people pay attention something <laughs> that i think i savored in many different roles in many sure different roles in my life definitely with the band that was getting a lot of attention you know mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't it wasn't being shouted out in the audience it was me on stage shouting out so you were so you're you were a new york kid right <laughs> your 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 parents is that is that right you were born in uh, new york and no we well westchester so just okay. uh, just north of new york westchester like yeah it's westchester westchester <laughs> it was a 30 minute uh train ride 40 minute train ride mm -hmm. and um and that's what we did we would just drop in through grand central hop on the irt go down to bleecker street get off and walk over to one block to cbgb's mm-hmm and if we wanted to go to Max's, you know, one different stop over on 14th Street instead of Bleecker and walk a few blocks up to 17th Street and Park Avenue South where Max's was and where they also did not care about one's age or identification. As long as you were there to see a band and, you know, pay your four bucks or five bucks or whatever it was at the time, that was fine. And eventually that, that disappeared too. The, the cover charge disappeared. Ah, well, and the other thing about a new, the miracle of New York at that time is even though it was, shall we say, a little more dangerous, um, <laughs> you know, uh, before it was before Times Square was Disneyfied and whatnot. Um, but the thing is, is that at the time, you know, in the 70s and 80s, people were free range children <laughs> and free range teenagers. And and the, the other thing is, is that New York is you can navigate it by foot and by public transit. So you could, as you said, you could migrate from CBGBs to Max's or wherever. And you and you had your, um, because things are, Manhattan is not a large place. <laughs> no, yet there's so much happening in such a small, it's a small tiny, acreage. Yeah, a tiny amount of square footage in a massive amount of people and mind space and energy. Mm -hmm. um, it was that that kind of thing, though, because at the time we started, Max's and CBGB's were really the only two clubs that were offering new music. So, you know, there were rock and roll clubs and and there were other uh, venues that were available pretty soon after that. There was disco uptown, but we could walk from Max's to CB's and there were many nights in which we did. There was a band playing uh, in each club that we wanted to see. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so we sorry, just one second. Okay, so we could walk between the two clubs and often did. I mean, it was 17 blocks from Bleecker, which is like First Street, mm -hmm. up to Max's. It was a straight line. And it was a restaurant or two that we would stop at 
either before or after. And we had this routine that we would do. And we weren't the only ones doing it. We had friends who were also teenagers that we met in New York, one or two of which ended up in the same band in the student teachers, a couple of which were in other teenage bands that were um, more punk because we were not really punk rock. We were kind of power pop or I don't know what to call us. We didn't know what to call us. People would ask us, are you punk? Are you new wave? And we would say, well, we're splash. We're a first splash. That's <laughs> so, yeah, there were a bunch of other teenagers who were in bands at the time, bands that we would play with the blessed, um, the speedies, you know, all of these young kids who went from the front row onto the stage at mm-hmm. CB's and Max's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a lot of fun, you know, it was a playground and mm-hmm. yes, it was dangerous. Uh, it, it wasn't just more dangerous. It was actually dangerous in a couple of times and places. Sure. CBGB's and, and at Bleecker and Bowery. I mean, I think, well, my father likes to tell the story of how they came to see me once. He stepped foot outside of the cab and a bum puked right in front of him. Because oh. <laughs> there were Bowery bums. Bum is not a great word for it. But at the time, people called them Bowery bums. Yes. And so, yeah, it was a, it was shady and it was seedy. And when we used to go to CB's very early on, the people who were inside, you know, it's capacity 150 people. Mm-hmm. And there would be many nights when the capacity wasn't reached, even for bands like the Ramones, you know, that might not be reached, but, mm-hmm. but at the bar, there were Hell's Angels a lot because Third Street was their headquarters around the corner. So you were in a place that was not necessarily safe, although one could argue they made it safer than a lot of other places because it was their haunt. Right. But yeah, it was um, it was seedy. It was shady. It was dirty. CB's was smelly and it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very different from today's sanitized and rather soulless. You know, I mean, it's and then you as well you would not being as young as you were in the late seventies, you missed out on the studio 54 thing. Cause that was a we little actually bit before, went, right? No, we actually ended up going uh, to studio 54. They would let us in because we were the punk kids from downtown. So we provided some color and entertainment. And then, you know, slowly other clubs started opening up, but yeah, we went up to studio 54. Actually one of the doormen there went down and became the doorman at the mud club. Mm. So the Mud mm. Club opened in the late 70s. Some of the bands we played with played there. It was the first place I saw the B-52s on their first trip to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, saw them there, saw them at Max's. And the, the, there was this cross-pollination. I mean, you could go to Studio 54 and Andy Warhol would be there, or suddenly he might show up at CBGB's. Mm-hmm. You know, and the same thing with other people. David Bowie could be in both places. You know, there were all sorts of um, uh, cross pollinators. And, you know, Andy was known for being somebody who was part of the Maxis Kansas City scene, because that's where earlier on, before punk, there were bands like the Velvet Underground, other bands like that playing at Maxis. There was no CBGBs at that time. Mm -hmm. But CBGBs, you know, David Bowie and Brian Eno, other people would show up Mm -hmm. and they would catch what was going on including our band one time so so we had 
we were we had visitations and and David Bowie did end up having something to do with our band for a minute or two before he vanished. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember I thought um, this was going to be about Buddhism. This is oh so well, funny. we're getting there. Okay, <laughs> we're getting there. So so the 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 interesting thing, the contrast between this life in yeah. the late '70s, early '80s. How did you? seg into how do how did you become connected with tibetan buddhism and your uh your rinpoche well it took a little while so i ended up going back to school when i retired from my band at the age of 19. Mm -hmm. so when i retired from rock and roll i went back to school for a while and when i came out of school i got a job at a record company at atlantic and worked there for a little while and then moved from major label down to indie downtown um, this uh, label called radical records and they had they put out a lot of performance artists in the kind of uh, trans performance scene so dean and the weenies hagatha icu these were all bands that would play at pyramid club and uh working there as an independent label i kind of was feeling like okay this is a little more my world uh, mm-hmm. of rock and roll, not uptown in 30 Rock, downtown, closer to CBGBs again. And then I started working at TVT, which was uh, an, the biggest indie label, self-distributed indie label at the time. And it was right when the, uh, the guy who ran the, the show discovered Nine Inch Nails. Mm. So it was right before their first single was released and I was there for four years and so those years between Atlantic down to Radical and then Crosstown over to TVT for a few years pretty much um, gave me my full of record industry because I got to see the sausage being made and it was... It was a lot worse than I thought when I was in a band. So I thought it was bad and I kind of wanted to get a peek behind the screen and boy, did I. So by the time I finished at TVT, I really didn't want to be in the industry anymore. And and aside from having a brief six months in this other label that I I got connected to from Jimmy Destry, who was in Blondie, who was our producer, uh, he connected me with this label that I worked with briefly and, and they just kind of underscored everything that was the worst drugs and you know shadiness and all this other stuff and i was just like "Ah, that's it i can't can't do it it's just too agonizing to witness and there was a bookstore that i used to go to to shop for my you know cool spiritual gifts because i had started having my own experiences in the world of uh, i guess at the time it was a little bit connected to new age but i mm-hmm. i sailed through the new age into so i had a, found a native american teacher in 1987 this is before i was even working at tvt and i was pursuing interests in that direction started reading more became kind of an armchair buddhist um, got connected with the whole vibe of tibetan buddhism because of the dalai lama coming through new york in 91 as the year of tibet mm-hmm. so i went to a bunch of events that uh, were sponsored by Tibet House, um, including uh, ones that I had to beg permission from my TBT boss to go to, and he didn't want to let me because I was his assistant. And I, I stated the case that people who supported the Dharma would end up receiving the same benefits and good karma and merit that the practitioners that they supported would attain through their practice. And I pointed out to him that the reverse was true as well 
that mm-hmm. people who stood in the way of students and their dharma would accrue demerit. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I got him a little bit. I got him to believe it enough so mm-hmm. that he let me go to a few of the dates. So I saw the Dalai Lama. He gave this huge Kala Chakra empowerment in Madison Square Garden. And I felt very like, like this, this is really rich, you know, and there he gave the Bodhisattva vows, which is when you actually promise to keep coming back again and again and again, even if you attain enlightenment, to keep returning, incarnate again and again to benefit all sentient beings until their suffering is removed, until it's done, until suffering is exhausted, which is never, but you keep, you make the promise that you'll keep back to keep working for the benefit of beings. So in 1991, the year of Tibet, I took those vows in Madison Square Garden, and I felt that there was something significant there. Um, And the Dalai Lama actually said there was something significant. He said, you know, uh, when even one person takes the Bodhisattva vow, the Buddhas of the 10 directions turn and look down at earth and say, oh, this is good, how wonderful. And he said, imagine what the Buddhas of the 10 directions are doing right now with 5,000 of you taking the Bodhisattva vow. So he, the Dalai Lama, has this gift of opening it up into timelessness and vastness without um, letting you know that's what's happening and suddenly you're in it. Mm-hmm. So that was 91. And I went through all of the rest of this uh, record company, Mishigas, through the end of 94. And I'd been going to this spiritual bookstore called Esoterica on uh, 9th Street and 4th Avenue, kind of actually poised very close to CBGB's as well, nine blocks. Coincidentally. (laughs) All all going on. And um, I loved it there. I would spend time there. I would shop there. I bought a lot of books there. All of the Buddhist books that I was buying, you know, I was picking up at Esoterica. And I liked to go there in particular because there was this kind of mad yogi who owned and ran the place who... um, he was big physically and he was imposing energetically and he wore lots of like antique jewelry and things and you know he would jingle when he walked and he had a heavy step it was as if you were in the presence of some barely human timeless being and a loud voice from the bronx and so i just i loved this guy because he was such a a hoot and he was simultaneously very devoted to his teacher who was a um, he was a Kashmir Shaivite, a student of Muktananda. Mm-hmm. So he was very devoted to his teacher, but he was also completely irreverent. And so I felt like I had a brother there because I was starting to feel this devotion and, you know, having a spiritual practice be a focus in my life that I was very uh, connected to, very interested in pursuing, um, very at home in. And I also had my punk rock past. So there was the irreverence. So I could hang out with Russell at Esoterica Mm -hmm. and we would shoot the shit, crack jokes. And, you know, he would talk about, he heard something from Lama Rama Ding Dong and Humpty Dumpty Rinpoche. And, you know, he would just cut, cut up and make me laugh. And so when I was pretty done with the music industry, I went to him and I said, do you need help here? Cause I like this place and I would love to just be able to spend more time here. And he needed a manager. So I, I became the manager of Esoterica and I would open and close each night 
and this is pre um, <laughs> pretty much pre internet not pre internet but definitely pre web and pre public consumption of electronic spaces cyberspaces mm -hmm. um, so there was a bulletin board at the front of the store and people would it was made of cork and yes. people would put tax I remember those <laughs> right so you didn't log into this bulletin board you put tax into it with flyers and leaflets and phone numbers that you could rip off the bottom and there were always different teachers coming through and, and different types of events that people would give all the way from the most bizarre channeling sessions because it was still the new age was still sure. yeah boring. so from angels talking um to i don't know satan worshiping to tibetans who were <laughs> coming through and uh and I had I I felt like I said a, a kinship to the whole Tibetan Buddhist thing from the armchair and from having gone to an event or two, and so when I started seeing this showing up, um, I was paying a little bit of attention, not so much, but I was I was noticing it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a woman who came who was a regular, who turned me on to a psychic, probably the only real psychic I ever met. Mm -hmm. And uh, his my session with him was was deep. He knew things, the whole thing, the real deal. Um, started talking to me immediately about my relationship with my father, and I almost got up and walked out. Mm. So a little after, too close to home. It was, it was a little much. But then he disappeared, and I I saw her again months later. And I said, "What happened to Michael? You know, I can't get through to him. I just get the machine." She goes, "Oh, I don't go to psychics anymore. I have Tibetan Buddhist teachers." And I was like, oh, okay, well, what about that? So I wanted to get to meet her teachers. It took a little while, but I wanted to get to meet her teachers because she'd been right on target about the psychic. So, But then there was a, somebody put up a flyer and the flyers were, the bulletin board was directly across from the cash register. So when I opened and closed each night with the cash register, I would have the bulletin board right in front of my face. And somebody put this poster up of a teaching on chud, which is severing or offering practice. It's with the drums and the bells and the trumpets. Mm -hmm. There was a teaching on chud, and it was being given by Chagdud Tolku Rinpoche. I had no idea who that was, but there was a picture of him, and he has the most amazing smile. He has this incredible radiance and smile. You know, it's like ear to ear, and he's got the whole appearance, you know, the top knot and the, I mean, he, he looked the part, a uh, little beard and mustache. He looked like he was timeless. It's interesting because at the time, I think he was 65 and he looked like he was a thousand years old. You know? <laughs> yeah. I've seen pictures um, of him. He looks a little, not, not, unlo not entirely unlike Yoda in a certain way. <laughs> he's somewhere between, um, what was the guy in, Mr. A karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi. Oh, Mr. Miyagi, yes. Somewhere between Mr. Miyagi and Yoda. And Yoda, yes. <laughs> um, and he was smiling this ear-to-ear -ear smile. And really, there was a sense of this joy in his smile. I mean, I say that it's radiant, and sometimes people say that. But really, there is a, a quality with certain people. They don't have to be 
Buddhist teachers, but there's a quality with certain people where they really are radiant, mm -hmm. they really are a glow. And he had that quality even visible in a picture, um, a Xerox tacked up on a cork bulletin board. There was this little face and every day I saw it, which was almost a week before I decided to look at it. <laughs> I saw this face and finally in kind of typical New York style, I was like, what is this guy so fucking happy about? You know, <laughs> what is going on here? Why is he smiling this smile? Why is he so happy? And I went up to look at what the flyer was about and I didn't know the teachings. I, I wasn't familiar with the reference, the Chud teachings. And two days had already gone by of the four day teachings. So I felt like, oh, I missed it. But you know what? I'm going to see if I can go anyway. And I went to the third day in the morning, and it was at 222 Bowery. It was right a block away from CBGB's, right over across Houston. So it was bleaker, Houston, and just south of Houston was this loft building over, you know, an appliance, a kitchen appliance, commercial kitchen appliance store, all of this kind of industrial stuff down there. And now probably has a coffee shop. But there was this loft at 222 Bowery, and it turned out that it belonged to John Giorno, the beat poet, who had been a boyfriend of Andy Warhol early on, um, and was the person who kind of established in a way, he established the tone and pace of spoken word in a way that most people don't even realize, in a way that people imitate with not knowing whom they're imitating. Because John, when he would speak, he had this rhythm and he always went up at the end and he would read his poems with this kind of intensity, this spoken word. The thing that people read their poems with, even to this day, that was John Giorno down to the whisper, up with the question. That was John. And it wasn't him doing a voice. If you called his phone, his voicemail was 9256372, leave a message. That was John. And he was a student of, he had been a student of Dujum Rinpoche, who was the head of the whole Nyingma, which is the oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism. And even though Dujum Rinpoche had passed, John kept one of the floors of the building as a shrine room. And he kept the seat, the throne where Dujum Rinpoche had sat and the shrine that Dujum Rinpoche had blessed untouched from 1987, the last time his teacher had been there. And it was a building also known as the bunker where William Burroughs lived. And you know a number of different artists lived in at different times. It's a storied building, incredible building. The second floor was this shrine, this shrine room. And walked up, walked in, sitting on the throne was Chagdu Drimpache, sitting on the floor. It, it had actually been a boys club building at the turn of the previous century, at the turn of the 20th century. So this was the shower floor. So there's a, a white, smooth painted, you know, uh, floor, and then all this Buddhist, beautiful Buddhist shrine, and these thrones and paintings on the walls, the Tonka paintings. And Rinpoche was sitting there on the throne. And there was a woman sitting at a seat just you know, next to him. And she was translating for him. Um, I, 
started to realize, though, that he was speaking English. And his English had such a heavy accent. And also, Tibetan syntax has the verb at the end of the sentence. So you would say, I to the store going. Just like Yoda. (laughs) That's where they got Yoda from. Looking for someone you are? It was from Tibetan Uh teachers. Actually, Kalu Rinpoche is also visibly uh, a reference point for, he was another Rinpoche that had a very wrinkled up face and he was one of the reference points for Yoda. So I started to notice that this was English. I couldn't really track it, but I heard that these were English words. The accent was heavy. When he said mind, he said men, almost like men, you know, and he kept saying basics, which for him was basically. Uh-huh. Um, and then he would say, Sodana, which was so then. So if you're listening to this man, he'd be like, Sodana, basics mean this way, that way, going up a hill, down, then going this path, that path, going. And I realized, oh, going path, those I know. But she was translating his English to English that we could understand. Mm-hmm. Thank God, because it would be impossible to really get from him. And I think there were most people in there actually thought he was speaking Tibetan. So, so he was teaching, she was translating. And I started to know this, realize there was this playful interchange with them where she would, he would speak and then he would grow silent and be very still and she would speak in English and he would kind of be watching her, tracking her. She would turn to him occasionally and try to get clarification. Excuse me one second. We can cut that out. She would turn to him occasionally to get clarification. She would say she had kind of a very formal voice. She went to boarding school. And she would say, Rinpoche, uh, that last part, did you say that the light comes in through the crown and out through the forehead? Or did you say that the light goes in through the forehead and out through the crown? And he would just get her. He'd be like, oh, your practice not enough doing. You know, you go back. You nundro, again, doing. Nundro is this preliminary practices that people will do. And she was getting flummoxed, but she would keep going. And every time that he, you know, that she turned to him, he would kind of get her for it, rib her for it. And I thought, this is kind of like a little stand-up comedy. This is a little, you know, Burns and Allen going it's on. Very borscht belt. It's very borscht belt. <laughs> and I'm loving it. You know, we're we're down a block away from CBGB's and this is borscht belt. So you've got our two performance background pieces. Thank you for setting me up. And and it's Tibetan Buddhism. And so he's laughing and, you know, they're joking. She's taking herself seriously, but then also laughing and going back and forth. And the teachings were profound. It was no lightweight, let's breathe and touch our breath and, you know, get comfortable and relax. No, this was some of the most Tibetan kind of Tibetan Buddhism where the visualizations are, you know, there is this goddess who cuts your head off and Mm -hmm. offers the parts of your body in a cauldron to all of the spirits that you owe karmic debts to. Mm -hmm. This was heavy. This is intense practice, Tibetan Buddhist practice. Um, Something that also, it's surprising that people are being introduced to so early in their spiritual careers because it's 
deep end stuff, not kiddie pool. No, this is Vajra. Vajrayana. <laughs> this is the deep yep. Vajrayana. Um, and so when she's giving these teachings, you know, as they're being playful, this description of having your body dismembered and being offered to spirits, there was another side of me that was like, yeah, tell me more about this. Mm-hmm. This is this is the good stuff. I mm-hmm. want to know about this. A very dark side, the same kind of thing that might attract you to the Bowery and Bleecker Street late at sure. night, number 15, attracted me to this this kind of um, visualized violence and intensity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is really all about tearing apart the structure to reveal what's really going on, getting rid of everything that you think you know. Getting rid of attachment to self. Mm-hmm. The very idea of visualizing yourself being chopped up again and again is intended to sever your attachment. And so chud means severance. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also mean offering. But in, in most cases, when we're talking about the chud practice, what we mean is severance, cutting. Mm-hmm. And that cutting is cutting through attachment. It's cutting through attachment to ego. It's cutting through attachment to pleasure and pain, attachment to attachment and aversion themselves. It's cutting through attachment in a way that is um, uh, drastic and sudden. It isn't a peaceful path. It's the wrathful path. So the peaceful path is where you sit and you meditate and you get in touch with your peace, your inner peace and your calm self, the the Buddhas that are sitting with their hands in their lap and meditating with their eyes slightly closed, radiating beautiful, gentle light. That's the peaceful path. Mm -hmm. And that's that works. There's no fault to the peaceful path. That's a profound path that many people take all the way to enlightenment. The wrathful path, most of the deities or Buddhas that are visualized are standing, not sitting. Mm -hmm. They're in an active state of dancing or moving or spinning Mm -hmm. or advancing towards you, like like as if they're moving towards you. And they hold in their hands rather than a begging bowl or a flower. They hold these weapons. So they hold a curved blade knife or a sword or Mm -hmm. a hook or a lasso, all of these images that are drastic and incredibly vivid. And what they're used for is cutting through attachment, Mm -hmm. piercing the ego, hooking with compassion, binding the, the sense of separate self. All of these implements are used as tools. These hand implements, as they call them, are used as tools to drastically alter your mind stream. It's the it's the uh, it's the Vajrayana dope slap. It's <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. There was a teacher who who drew the parallel to a parent giving some tough love. What are you a moron? <laughs> right? You're still holding on to this stuff. Actually, you know, Chagdu Rinpoche in one teaching, he he's they were giving. Uh, we were sitting there getting a formal teaching. The same kind of rhythm, speaking into in his broken English, his accented English with Tibetan syntax, and having it translated into English that we could all understand. And it, it was going back and forth, and he was looking at the crowd, and he was seeing where everybody was at. And he had vision, so he wasn't just seeing like whether people were paying attention to. He was seeing kind of where people's minds were at. 
And he just interrupted the translator and said, it's time for you to, I won't do the accent, but he was like, you have to stop pretending all of this is real. As if we were willfully pretending, like as if we, were, we knew it wasn't real and we were pretending it was. No, we all believe it's real. But to him, he was just looking at us and saying like, wake up, wake up. This is like a dream. This isn't solid. This isn't real in the way that you believe it to be. Because when you're in a dream, you believe the dream to be real. You can wake up within the dream. And that's like waking up into enlightenment when you're in your waking state. But normally when you're in the dream, you believe it's real mm -hmm. until you wake up. And when you wake up, you not only realize it wasn't what you thought it was, you realize it wasn't real at all. And within minutes, it's gone from your uh, memory as well. So if you're in a dream and something is disturbing you and you're tossing and turning and somebody is awake right next to you, the thing that they're going to do if they have any compassion is wake you up from that nightmare. Mm -hmm. And that's what these teachers, these Rinpoches were doing. Mm -hmm. They were shaking us awake, sometimes with gentle practice. Hey, honey, wake up, wake up. And sometimes with, hey, smoke. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the example that one of the other teachers gave was, if your mother is looking out the window from her kitchen, this is very race, uh, sexist, but if your mother's looking out the window from the house and sees you playing in the yard and you start to run after the ball and it's heading for the street, she's not going to say, oh, honey, please don't go out in the street. She's going to run out of the house. And she's going to get to you as fast as possible. And if you're right by the street, she's going to tackle you. She is going to take you down so that you don't run in front of a car. And from a child's perspective, you've just been attacked by your right. own mother. <laughs> right. Like you don't know why. You don't see right. the car. You're ignorant of what the harm is. You're ignorant of the danger. And so what you have is your mother just attacked you. It's traumatizing. It's intense. Well, these wrathful dakinis or goddesses that's who they are. These, they're these mothers who are trying to free us from the danger of attachment to ordinary thought, to ordinary ego clinging. And so their, their activity is intense and frightening. And when they are holding their curved blade, it's to cut your attachment. And the visualizations can be quite dramatic. The mm -hmm. skirt, it's like Kali, you know, the skirt yes. is severed arms. And the skulls and, and the, the skulls blood. form the necklace. And so right. the skulls are ego. So the severed heads are severed ego. And the arms are attachment. So the grasping of the arms severed. And, um, you know, the when a monkey gets caught in the jungle by the coconut trap, right? there's a hole in the coconut. They go and reach in because there's something shiny or sweet and they make a fist and it, their hand is in a fist. They can't remove it. Because they, they won't let to, go. They won't let go. All they have to do is let go and they'd be free, but they're attached. And so somebody, a poacher comes up behind them and bop, they're done all because they wouldn't let go and they're screaming trying to escape trying to escape but still holding tightly mm. and that's the danger so that's when one of these wrathful dakinis would cut the arm off mm -hmm. if you're facing a danger that you can't let go of that you're going to encounter because you're grasping 
is so intense and you can't let go, then I'm going to sever your attachment, mm -hmm. cut through. That's the chud. So Rinpoche was giving this teaching, but then being playful at the same time. And after on the second day, so it was the last day of teaching, um, the translator, whom I later found out was his wife, this very elegant woman who went to boarding school was, her name was Jane Dedman, and she was his wife, married him and uh, met him in India, married him and br helped bring him to the West. She said, um, during the lunch break, uh, Rinpoche is going to give the Red Tara empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wasn't, I wasn't, I knew what an empowerment was. I'd never heard of Red Tara. I knew Tara. Mm -hmm. Tara is the compassionate savioress, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Buddha that vowed in a previous life to always return as a woman in order to save beings. Because when she prayed to a Buddha in a previous eon and said, what can I do to become enlightened? He said, be reborn as a man. And she said, no. Not doing in, it. <laughs> no. In non-dual awareness, there isn't male or female. I am not buying that bag of tricks. I will always come back as a woman until I am enlightened. And once I am enlightened, I will remain in the form of a woman and be the savioress that will come rapidly to benefit all beings just like a mother would her own child. So I knew who Tara was. Mm -hmm. And I actually have her, uh, after we finish, I will show you, I have her on the wall behind you right now. That's great. The Tara. My head. Yes. Um, but I'd never heard of Red Tara. Uh -huh. And she said that this was a practice that all of Rinpoche's students did around the world. And so if, if people were part of the local practice group in New York, which I didn't know existed, if they were part of the local practice group and they hadn't received the empowerment yet, they should. Or if somebody felt interested in potentially being part of the local practice group, they should uh, stay during lunch and, and receive this empowerment. So I thought, all right, let's check this out. You know, the, the thing that the Dalai Lama gave over many days at Madison Square Garden in 1991 was this vast empowerment with many, many stages. You know, it took two days to give it and it was uh, incredibly ornate and complex. There were so many different moments within it in which the teacher interacted with the students, giving them something. I mean, and he did it through, you know, very many different monks uh, who were attending, giving people a sip of water, giving people a bop on the head, giving people something to taste, all these different stages of the empowerment that went on for two days. But Rinpoche was going to give a very simple, essentialized empowerment that was basically being touched on the head by this one implement called a torma, which is like an offering cake. Mm -hmm. So there was a red Tara torma sitting on the shrine. And anybody who wanted to receive the empowerment would wait, and then he would touch their head with that. And that would be that essential, simplified ritual would contain all of the blessings necessary to then have the permission to visualize oneself as Tara, to do the mantra, to do the practices. Um, because in Vajrayana, you can picture Buddhas in front of you and do many different practices, but in order to picture yourself as a Buddha, to mm -hmm. dissolve your sense of identity as me, 
and then arise as a Buddha, Tara, or, or any of these other Buddhas, mm -hmm. Guru Rinpoche, Chenrezig, Avalokiteshvara, who mm -hmm. the Buddha of compassion, in order to visualize yourself as this, you need to have the empowerment. Mm -hmm. So it's a permission level. And it's mm -hmm. also a transmission where something is, is something moves between the sense of self and the teacher, something appears to come from the teacher to this, even though ultimately there isn't this division and this Buddha nature is in us already. There is this pointing out this introduction. Like a trans, like a transference or, or maybe not quite that, but an indication of a recognition of what resides within. Yeah. Of the Buddha nature in a certain form. Like mm -hmm. Buddha nature, all of the Buddhas have the same mind, the same Buddha nature, and all beings, all of us have Buddha nature. It's just covered up with more or less muck, you know, in, a, <laughs> yeah. in an enlightened being, it's not covered at all. It's like a diamond covered in mud. With them, yeah. they are diamonds. With us, we're diamonds completely covered in mud, and we have to remove that mud through our meditation practice, mm -hmm. either slowly through peaceful practice, or more quickly through the chopping of the mud through wrathful mm -hmm. practice. But in order to awaken that, what is already inside that diamond Vajra that is already inside the Buddha nature, then the, the practice is to visualize oneself already actualizing Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. So visualizing oneself as the Buddha of compassion or, or the Buddha Tara or any of these Vajrasattva or Guru Rinpoche who brought Buddhism to Tibet, visualizing yourself as an actualized Buddha, faking it till you make it you know right and the recognition th this reminds me as you were as you were talking about this i i was reminded i was an art history major and i and i'm reminded of michelangelo and the idea that you you have a block that you know he would say that he was liberating the figures from the stone yes because yeah, he could the... see them in there and he just had to get to them had to cut away had yeah. to cut away yeah chip away and that that really is similar there is this buddha within us and these teachers can see it. They're the artists in this case. They can see it. They know it's there. And really, I later uh, kind of came to an understanding of empowerment as being more like an attunement. Mm -hmm. So like tuning forks. Mm -hmm. The little ones will start to vibrate in the frequency of the larger ones, mm -hmm. right? If you hold them near each other, if they're touching. Um, so the teacher is this big tuning fork. And when the teacher visualize them, visualizes themselves as a Buddha, they do it correctly. They do it completely. They are that Buddha. So he was going to become Tara in his own experience, transform completely into being Tara. And then we would be sitting in front of him and trying our best feebly to picture ourselves as Tara. And at least seeing a picture of her, knowing what she looked like and holding that image in our mind. And then in a sense, our imagination, our image of Tara and his mind stream as Tara connect and there's a resonance. And so if you actually can hold the image even more so, if you can hold the image of Tara in your imagination, then really that, that becomes one with mm -hmm. the teacher's visualization of themselves, or really at that point, the teacher's experience of themselves as that Buddha with whatever the visual attributes are, whatever they're holding in their hands, whatever posture they're sitting in. So I said, sure, I'm gonna do this. 
And, you know, everybody got up and talked about which Chinese restaurant they were going to go to because it's right near Chinatown. And right. I, I said, oh, I'm going to give up on dumplings, but I'm going to get something in return. Uh-huh. And I sat down, you know, I, I stayed seated and Rinpoche came off the throne and sat on a chair as everybody was milling about. And he took his mala, his beads off from around his neck and he started to do the Tara Mantra, because this is part of what they call self-generation. Mm-hmm. So he was going to become Tara before he introduced us to himself as Tara. And in order to do that, he would dissolve himself, take on the visualization of himself as Tara, do the mantra as Tara, and become Tara. So he sat down, without me knowing what he was doing, he became Tara, and he started doing the mantra. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to suss him out. What's this going to be? How's this going to work? I've seen the two-day version. What's this lunchtime version? Yeah. How does this work? You know, she hadn't even said there's going to just be this plate with a cake on it. She just said this is going to be the very simplified essential empowerment. So I'm sitting there watching him. And he takes his beads off and starts doing this mantra. And, you know, he was renowned for his singing voice, his chanting voice, this incredible sonorous baritone that even people who weren't his students, people who went to different centers, some of their Tibetan teachers would use recordings of him doing the prayers because Mm. he was known for this incredible, incredible voice. And so under his breath, even, his voice had this energy. So he starts muttering this mantra under his breath. He wasn't chanting, just like, I'm sitting in front of him, feeling it. In one way, feeling the resonance of the tone. Very musical, very powerful. But also, inwardly, it was a blast. It was like a, a, a breeze moving through. It was like the, what was that, the ad where the guy sits in the chair and puts on like Ampex? I don't know if you remember this. It was a tape for Memorex or Ampex, and it was to show oh, you how yes. the recording was yes. as good as live. And this, you know, the butler comes up and puts the cassette in and presses yes. play, and this guy's sitting in the chair and yeah. his hair blows back. I do remember it. Yes, he's blasted by this wave of sound and visual. That was Rinpoche. Wow. There was this blast. My my inner hair blew back. <laughs> you know, and the bass beat bumped and i felt it in my heart i felt that you know when people say your heart jumped because you see somebody well that was it was like my heart skipped beats because there was this karmic connection and i you know knew all about those i had met different teachers in crazy different ways the way that i met my native american teacher is a whole other podcast Mm -hmm. but i had met i had experienced miraculous events around teachers already yeah this was not one that i knew about ahead of time so it's not one that i had expectation about Mm -hmm. the empowerment for three thousand five thousand people with the dalai lama did not have this kind of personal 
moment, this experience, there was a lot of energy. It was incredible. You know, like I said, when we took the vows, it was incredible. But this was somebody who was five feet away from me and whose energy I felt like, you know, a bomb. And I, uh, I teared up. It was so powerful, even just to think of it, to put myself in it today. I feel that wave, mm. that energy, blessing power is what, you know, people will call it for lack of a better term, but that blessing power is not something you can describe with those two words. It's something that has a physiological effect on you. You know, you can, when you have it, that kind of a connection with a teacher, you know, the, your hair stands on end. Like you, your entire body becomes attentive and receptive. Just like if somebody rings a gong, your attention turns to the gong completely because of how intense that sound is. Your, your mind and your, your auditory capacity doesn't hear or think of anything but that sound. Well, the same was true with this moment. And it was not just sound. It was uh, a deep internal experience that everything stopped. And it is, it's like when you're in your house and you hear something that you shouldn't hear mm -hmm. and all your hair stands up because you're like, what's that? Right. Is that a it's, peacock it's, on the roof or is that a tree <laughs> branch? Yes. Or is that something that's, um, oops, hold on. There's a, or is that someone in the house that shouldn't be, mm -hmm. you know? So suddenly you, you go on this high alert, you, you get dead still and you go on this high alert of like, what's this, what's this? And your hair stands up on the back of your neck, in your arms, everywhere. Your, your every pore becomes alert. And so it was like that. Hold on, I've got somebody adding some audio here. Oh. <laughs> um, so it was, it was this moment. Wow. Of silence, of, of power. <laughs> maybe if I just leave, maybe <laughs> if I just leave her here, she'll make less noise. So it was it was this moment of silence, of stillness, of receptivity, and of this power, blessing power. And I I thought okay, I think I understand the difference between an ornate empowerment and a very simple empowerment. And there were, I think there were four or five people who had stayed to get this, maybe not even, maybe it was, it was like three or four people who had stayed to get this because his other people in his practice group already had it. So we just were sitting there and one by one we went up and he held this plate with the offering cake on it, the torma, touched our head with it, and that was it. You know, and after that, he, you know, put his hand on our head and each of us and we were done. We were empowered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I became a part of that practice group in New York, because once that experience happened, I was like, OK, if these are if this is what people are doing somewhere in New York, mm -hmm. let me be there with them to do this. And it was at someone's house, you know, it was at somebody's yeah. living room. 
and we would put a little picture of red tara on the table leaning against the flower vase you know and and do this short practice that he had translated into english of red tara and so that was it really that was the hook uh and once that happened that really was it that mm -hmm. was the turning point like a door swinging on a hinge after which the rest of my life was never the same you know one of i i had i just had an idea what would you say to doing because you became his assistant and there's a lot more to the story what would you say to doing a part two because i know you have to go and teach and not too long i have about a half hour but i would also i'd be open to doing a part two you know some of this is um, and then we'll talk about which parts to use or not use, because some of it yeah. is also like uh, there's a long term project I'm working on mm -hmm. um, that this might be able to be a piece of, at least in the audio. Yeah. Which is called Meeting Rinpoche. Uh huh. And so it's it includes this moment. It's not just this moment, but it includes this moment. And it includes also the stories of many different people when they met their Rinpoche, whether it was Chagdud Rinpoche or another one. Mm -hmm. People who had a, it's suffice to say what the experience I had, which was so unique to me in the, in the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism is not so unique. Mm -hmm. The, when you meet the teacher with whom you have a karmic bond, and when they say that, it's not light. They, what they mean is with whom you have a karmic bond through many lifetimes. So when you meet the teacher with whom you have a karmic bond through many lifetimes, there is an experience, an awakening, mm -hmm. some type. It isn't necessarily during a ritual like this one was. You know, it could have been, in fact, the experience was starting when there was the teaching going on and he was teasing his wife mm -hmm. you know that experience of connection that bond that being drawn in was already happening in fact you could back it up the bond was already happening when i was looking at his smiling face on that mm -hmm. bulletin board mm -hmm. whatever it was that made me feel like what's he look so happy about you know that feeling that question mark uh-huh that can't be real. Right. And you're in your sarcastic, guy? cynical American self. New York Western American mind. self. That's right. Uh, what's he so happy about? Um, that's where the bond starts expressing itself. That that question mark, what's he so happy about was a deeper question mark. It was, who, who is this? What's going on? Is there also, I wanted to ask you, it, many um western buddhist teachers are also jewish is <laughs> is there a is there a connection between judaism as a very deep and an ancient religion is there a a uh, a meeting point between well, it, the two it's funny yeah i um i think there are many um mm -hmm. on a on an exoteric level there is this sense of, um, you know, your rabbi is the representative of a tradition. Now, that's not just Judaism, but the, mm -hmm. but the tradition is one of questioning. Yeah. So we who yeah. wrestle with God. That's it. So Jacob, um, that wrestling with God is questioning, and and not being satisfied 
with just one answer, but needing to hear many answers, needing to, to search for those answers ourselves internally. So it isn't, it is, there isn't a, a priest who wrestles for us. There isn't an avatar who purifies our sins. Mm -hmm. We each have to deal with it ourselves, and right. that wrestling is personal and can be painful. Mm -hmm. um, and through that wrestling, then we come to some understanding whether we, whether we go through pain to get there or not. Well, usually, if we have attachment, there's some pain. Um, we go through that wrestling, we get to something that, although it's not a final answer, sets us firmly on the path of questioning, mm -hmm. that path of receptivity. And in Buddhism, I think in, maybe more so in Tibetan Buddhism than others, there is this call to receptivity. So to be open to blessings really means to have that question mark that, that, that can turn into yearning, that can turn into a thirst for depth, for uh, deeper levels of meaning. So, so, you know, that's the other thing. Every exoteric religion has an esoteric part. So right. whether it's the mystic Christian who merges mm -hmm. directly with Christ, mm -hmm. or it's the Shaivites who, you know, the exoteric Shaivites worship a lingam and make offerings, mm -hmm. and Shiva is a god that dances. Well, the esoteric Kashmir Shaivites, Shiva is awareness itself, the cosmic awareness. Um, so each one has their own esoteric tradition. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about Tibetan Buddhism and Judaism, the esoteric tradition of which is Kabbalah, mm -hmm. not the little red thread celebrity Kabbalah, but the right. real, the real ancient one. <laughs> Kabbalah. Yes. Not, not the Madonna Kabbalah, yes. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> But the real Kabbalah is about how to ex how to recognize the manifold expressions of divinity as being one. Mm. So the tree of life has 10 spheres and 23 paths, and each of them is a facet of the one God. Mm -hmm. So the tree is the way that one can explain, oh, God is merciful, God of might, God of right, God of you know wisdom, all of these different names of God, um, how that can be one God. Well, it's all plotted out on the tree. Each mm -hmm. sphere has a different meaning. Each path has a different quality. Mm -hmm. And so this, this glyph, this, this image, this esoteric tool, which is not just a tool because it's the nature of truth, mm -hmm. the, the explanation of monotheism and how it's possible, this is very similar to Vajrayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Because in Vajrayana Buddhism, excuse me, because in Vajrayana Buddhism, there are countless different Buddhas. Some of them are compassion, some of them are might. Mm -hmm. Some of them are wisdom, some of them are intuition, some of them are intellect, some of them are feminine, some of them are masculine. This is exactly the same thing that the tree of life plots out from masculine to feminine to neutral, from wrathful to peaceful, from completely spacious openness. Hold on. Second. 
from completely spacious openness and luminosity down to completely material elements of the planet Earth, Vajrayana and Kabbalah both include all of that. And in and not in a not in a kind of abstract way, in a very detailed way. Um, and so whether you're visualizing deities, which you can do in both, you visualize mm-hmm. angels in the Kabbalah, you visualize deities and Buddhas in Vajrayana Buddhism, whether you learn what it is to walk through the different paths between these deities, because in Vajrayana Buddhism, they talk about the teacher, the, the Lama, Yidam, and Dakini. So the teacher, the Yidam is the version of the Buddha that you meditate on, that mm-hmm. you each person has one out of the many that they find to be the one that works the best for them, that they have a karmic bond with, or the Dakini, this cutting through aspect of the goddess. Every person has those three roots, Lama, Yidam, and Dakini. Well, the same is true then in the tree. There is the male, the female, and the, the neutral, the, mm-hmm. the non-dual. Mm-hmm. And, and in the inner tantras, where you actually work with the subtle body, and this is a lot like Kundalini Yoga, you work yes. with the channels and the chakras. Mm-hmm. So in that inner tantra in Buddhism and in Tibetan Buddhism, then you're working with actually three pillars, the right channel, the left channel, and the central channel, mm-hmm. the male, the female, and the non-dual, are then identical in many ways to the tree of life with its mm-hmm. three columns. So the tree and Vajrayana Buddhism have these corresponding qualities, these details. Some of them then also right down into the metaphysical structure of there being three tiers. You know, in Buddhism, there's the Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. And in uh, Kabbalah, there's the supernal triad and then the you know, timeless triad and then the earthly triad. There are these three triads that have to do with manifestation, purity, and essence. And this is really identical in many ways. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, there are people who would say, David, it is not identical. Because in truth, it's not identical. Right. But you can draw so many correspondences that it is surprising. Mm-hmm. and um, fascinating. And then even though a lot of Jews are not practitioners of Kabbalah, there is this essence that goes through the Jewish teachings of how um, the word is light and the word is God. Mm-hmm. And so the vibration of sound is what divinity arises through. There was the word and the word was God, you know. Um, And this is true also with visualization and mantra. So there's light and there's sound. When we get right down to it, there's space, there's light, there's sound. And it reminds me also a bit of esoteric Christianity. There's a a book called The Cloud of Unknowing. Have you heard this? I think it's a 10th century. Uh, It's not Meister Eckhart. It's somebody else. It's a, he was English. In the north of England, I want to say the 10th century, he was a he was a monk, and he is trying to know God, and he's trying to pierce the cloud of unknowing. And there's something about these uh, esoteric um, meditations that he writes uh-huh. about that reminds me so much of a, a Taoist practice, a Buddhist practice. There's so much commonality, and like I I I I have a theory that if you take mystics of any 
practice or faith and you put them in a room together, they'd say, no, of course. <laughs> they they would like, all be speaking the same language, essentially. I know you. I know you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, Just the outfit's a little different. <laughs> the outfit and the name, you know, the, the chant is different. <laughs> so whatever name you're repeating is, is different. But That's it. That's there it. is this, there is purity. And that is openness that's unobstructed and light mm -hmm. that's ceaseless mm -hmm. and sound that vibrates through all creation. And that's mm -hmm. the same, no matter what the image is and no matter what the sound is, mm -hmm. that essence is the same. Whether it's whirling dervishes and Sufism or anybody else, that's fantastic. I, I think this is a wonderful place to end here and we will do a part duh because I think there is much more to explore. And this has been so fantastic. I love talking to you. And you you got me with that Gorshback <laughs> reference. I totally didn't see that coming. I kind of thought the CBGB's part would show up because you had spoken to Vicky. Yeah. Yeah. So and you had told me that you'd spoken to Vicky. And I think back then I actually hunted it down to hear my name fall from her lips. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I figured that would come in. But the borscht belt, oh, you got me. That's it. That's it. The Tibetan borscht belt. Thank you so much, <laughs> David. Until next time. All right. Thanks, Dana. Talk to you soon. So there it is. I bet you never thought there was a connection between the borscht belt and Tibetan Buddhism. But there it is. Unexpected and delightful, as are the best things in life. And as previously stated, there will be an episode two to look forward to stories of David and his teacher, Chagdud Tolku Rinpoche. Very much looking forward to that. Meanwhile, take good care of yourselves, take good care of each other. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Thank you so much for your listenership and for your support. Take good care, and I'll see you next time.